0: Welcome to 353rd. I'm Anders Brownworth.
1: and I'm Scott Barstow. You are listening to 353rd. Using Anders, what's the technology we use to record this podcast? We had somebody comment on the uh, on the quality of it, so I thought we might want to give somebody a, a new shout out for that.
0: We're using the cheapest possible microphones there are. The one, the one in my uh, the one in my MacBook Pro here. Uh, we're using Skype, and, and I've got uh, headphones on, so uh, so there would be a minimum of feedback. Uh, what do you use in there, Scott?
1: I've got just—I've uh, got this exact same setup. I've got a headset. Uh, it's a Logitech headset, and we use uh, Skype call recorder, right?
0: We do, but there's uh, there's another thing that we do. Uh, there is a free software package called Levelator, which is a Mac app that you just take your uh, audio files. We we record in Skype call recorder and split into uh, AIFF files. And then, uh, we drop them onto Levelator, which does its magic. I'll just say, check it out. It's uh, it's pretty cool. If you're, if you're into doing uh, spoken audio, it's a fantastic way to kind of get things sounding really good, uh, without doing much, uh, doing much work. Um, Great then we, stuff. yeah, then we bring it all into uh, sound studio and, and edit on from there. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. So Anders
1: actually produces uh, the entire show uh, from the comfort of his uh, Cush apartment there in Cambridge, and uh, I I come uh, come to you from Raleigh, North Carolina. Excellent. Getting
0: a little hot up here. Uh, I was thinking of going for a run, but it is so sweltering. I don't think I would make it.
1: So yeah, that's well, that's partially because you're old. <laughs> Talking about
0: old, we've got we've got a uh, we've got a. Uh, line item on our list today about that. But before we talk about that, uh, we, uh, we have to do a rewind section. Um, great story this week, uh, this past week on uh, Bitcoin, uh, specifically this guy who posted to a forum saying that he had lost some half million dollars worth of his Bitcoin. Uh, somebody uh, you know did an unauthorized transfer right out of his wallet, leaving him with a, a scant two or three bitcoins left. Um.
1: <laughs> so we talked about bitcoins in episode five yeah uh, we talked about it this new idea of uh, a new currency and uh, I think what we what we can gather from this week's uh, this past week's story is that they haven't quite worked all the kinks out yeah.
0: Well, I don't know if that's working the kinks out or just somebody being stupid with their, I mean, he had him stored in one place on a Windows machine and uh, he had, you know, he was, I don't know, living fast and furious with, the, uh, with his uh, viruses and stuff. Um, I think that's what did him in, actually. Yeah, the
1: guy, the guy was seriously bummed.
0: Yeah, well, I would be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what are you but doing it- with half a million dollars in Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, that's what I. That was part of that was part of my question. Well, he, and the other thing is, why are you not? If you've got half a million dollars in Bitcoin, shouldn't you be just paying? Shouldn't you be paying just a bit more attention?
0: I would think uh, so. But I, you know, i actually read through a bit of the thread, and I, I remember he said he was uh, wanting to start a Bitcoin exchange. So that might be uh, okay. why you would have so much. But uh, still, it, it's just it's uh, it's a horrible story for him and quite a warning. Uh, It is a new currency. It is, uh, you know, speculative in the in the utmost. So uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't go squirreling away a million dollars on your computer uh, unless you had some adequate security going on. Just copying your wallet somewhere else is not good enough. Matter of fact, you could argue that's worse because now you got two copies of the wallet that you can, or you know, two copies of the coins that you could run a transaction on. Uh, So.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if if it makes sense for you to put your wallet on something uh, that you carry around with you all the time.
0: Yeah, that's what people were talking about. Uh, actually, storing the wallet on a USB key or something yeah. like that, yeah. and not having it on a, a net accessible file system. I, that, that does there's merit to that. Yeah, um, but then you plug, again, you plug
1: it in when you need it and then
0: unplug it when you don't. True, except for the fact that that thing might you know crash and or become otherwise unreadable and sure. now you're out so it's, yep. uh yeah it's anyway still got still got yeah. some
1: issues with it but it's it's uh i think it's it's good in that it's it, it these kinds of stories only help to make uh the the environment and all of that sort of thing stronger so i think you know people will now start to think about oh well what do i do when that happens yeah um, so it's. Uh, I think it's a. It's a. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. It's just like you said. It's a warning that people need to start paying attention.
0: Yeah, it's healthy to do the intellectual exercise of seeing what happens.
1: Yep. Um,
0: so moving on. Uh, texting. Te- now this is this is something you got to watch out because I could seriously rant about this one.
1: Uh, <laughs> As so, opposed to all the other things that we talk about, where you don't right. have any opinions.
0: I don't. I generally have no opinions. I'm not very. You know. I'm not very opinionated myself, but on this topic. So. Texting, first of all, you know, in terms of the amount of data use that a, a text represents on a network, it's not—it's not twenty-five cents. It's not five cents. It's, no. It's not half a penny.
1: I no, mean, it's, it's it's barely a thousandth of a penny, probably. It's it's
0: it's minuscule because if it you is. if you look at how much uh, uh, bandwidth or spectrum that voice takes. And continually takes over and over, you just as long as you're talking. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just a text is inconsequential. So,
1: for So carriers, let's, let's set the stage a little bit sure, for this. Ahead. So, yeah, why yeah, are we talking about this? I don't there know. was an article in the, uh, in the Wall Street Journal last week that said that texting is off, or sorry, not that it's off, but it's increased by the lowest amount ever um, from the prior six months. Yeah. And so the everybody is uh, is taking this as kind of a warning shot. First of all, carriers make a pile of money on texting. So whether you're paying by the text or you're paying, you know, 20 bucks for unlimited texting, they're still making a pile of money. Yeah. Um, just because, just like insurance, they're able to, they know that most users are not going to come anywhere near what they're spending if they've got, you know, if, so if you're getting 400 texts a month you know, to use most users um, come in below. So I think the, the reason that it was a, an interesting article is because the carriers are put on notice that, look, this revenue stream may start to go away.
0: Yeah. And, and here's, the, here's the key to this, I think. While the revenue stream may significantly decrease or even go away, it's going toward, it's not because people are texting less. It's because people are using SMS less. They're using they're doing texting over the data channel, which That's
1: exactly right.
0: Right. So so it's not I wouldn't look at this and, and think that teenagers have stopped texting. I mean, if anything, the complete opposite is true. So this is sort of the last vestige holdout. Uh, well, second to last holdout of of uh, mobile carriers on on something that they had a total lock in that they were making a boatload of money, given how much it actually did cost them. Uh, I, the 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 last, of course, of that is voice itself. Eventually, voice will migrate to the data channel as well. Yes, and it, and it has in a lot of cases already. Uh, but those are the two. Uh, the Texting, of course, you can you can figure out other ways to get around it because you've still got you've still got a customer paying for voice. But once you once you go to taking voice out, where I can't buy less than 450 minutes with my cell plan. I might use 40 or 50 a, a month, 40 or 50 minutes. I mean, I never use these minutes. Yeah. I never I never use voice calls. I mean, it's it's just some, not something I do. I kind of get on, get off quick or something on my phone. Um, so it's a whole, you know, it's a whole uh, a sort of balloon that's that's deflating, I think. And and it'll be interesting because I don't see a, a real easy revenue way to allow carriers to continue supporting the data service at what I would argue is actually a relatively cheap price. Granted, yeah, I they agree. still meter you, but, you know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I would agree, and I think the so what's what's uh, what makes this newsworthy is because companies like Apple are coming out with iMessage, which allows you to do device-to-device messaging and bypass the carrier. Yeah, over
0: the data channel.
1: Over the data channel, and then uh, Rim, who we've talked about before and uh, generally dislike, they also have uh, their messenger product that does the same thing, and so the you know these the phone manufacturers or are starting to come around to this idea of tapping into that. And it'll be interesting to see how, uh, I, initially I suspect that it will start out as a, you know, a service that it's just free and all of those kinds of things. It'll be interesting to see if, uh, how, the, how they monetize it in the future. Once you get, once Apple starts to get, you know, half of their user base using iMessage instead of, uh, instead of straight SMS, it'll be interesting to see where it goes from there. Because um, yeah. I don't think they're going to give it away forever. Um so I, I do. Do you?
0: Yeah, I think they would. Why wouldn't they? It's it's just like push notifications. I, I, I think they would. They 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 deliver billions of push notifications. That's true. So that's true. I, I yeah, don't see right. why they wouldn't do that. And the other the other thing, of course, that's gonna that's gonna absolutely just slam the door hard would be if there would be some way that uh Google's Android would interrupt somehow with iMessenger, I'm not saying that's likely or or anything, but if that were to happen where you had some open message exchange that was not SMS and carriers could just, you know, start to, or, or phone, phone app makers or operating system makers could just, uh, implement it, it would be game over. And you would see the whole infrastructure crash within
1: a year or two. Well, I wonder if you couldn't use something like XMPP as the standard. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, I mean, it's set up for that. Matter of fact, yep. uh, uh, we, do, we do SMS at uh, Bandwidth through S- XMPP. Yep. So it's very popular. Um, yep. All right, let's move on. Made for it. So this is something. Uh, where is Rails going uh, with 3.1? Have you have – you, this is Ruby on Rails we're talking about here. Have you, have you been up to speed on everything going on with 3.1? Um, well, there's
1: a, there's a big flap um, and I think it's, it's been really since the 3.0 release from what I, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat new to Ruby, so I don't know, you know, I can't profess to have been involved since version one, but the big flap with 3.0 was that it, was, it made it extremely difficult to, to upgrade from 2.0 to 3.0. Yeah. So if I wanted to upgrade a 2.0 app to a 3.0 app, there was, uh, because of some of the things that used to be just for granted and in the application by default, yeah, were now uh, explicit and had to be configured, yeah, and and so it caused some angst amongst the community, and I think three one, from what I understand, is just another step down that road. And I think the, I think the problem that people are having is Rails started out as this very lightweight framework that allows you to build web applications quickly and support the protocols on the web that uh, that most applications care about now, whether that's REST or, you know, just these simple interchange protocol, data interchange protocols, Rails just handled it, it worked perfectly, it was lightweight, it was uh, quick, you were quick to build applications and get them deployed. And it seems to me that most of the flap around these new releases is that Rails is becoming a mature language yeah. and and it's starting to take on, You start. they're starting to take on some of the hard problems of software development. So if, uh, for instance, is the, uh, the signing of requests. And for those of you that aren't technology people, um, this will just be completely boring. But, uh, but the, the idea that um, when I make a request to a website, there's a number of ways that that request can be authenticated and that they know who's making the call. One of those is uh, I, can, um, I can provide some credentials, Uh, you know, my username and password, and that's a common way. And then another way is the actual, I can actually sign the request with a certificate from a known certificate authority. And, um, and so as a, for instance, I did some work for a client where um, there was, I had to interact with a soap service that required me to sign the request. And, and that's every, every one sign, every request. And, in if I was in Java or .NET or any of those kind of uh, you know what most people would consider in the Rails world at least these bigger and bulkier languages um, that those libraries exist it's very easy to do um, but in Rails I, we actually had to you know code around and you know hack some things in and that's the beauty of Rails that you can do it right I can yeah. I can do anything I want in it but I think what what we're seeing is that as those kinds of things are as People are as Rails is starting to become more mainstream, especially in corporate America. Um, these kinds of requests are are going to become uh, more and more needed, and I guess they, it's a natural progression in my mind is that it's going to get more complex. Yeah. What do you think?
0: Well, does it is it ne- is it necessarily more complex? I mean, the the move from the the two X series to three was. Uh, a bit more, and a lot of the things that you would normally get for free, you now had to generate by hand by running a script, but it was relatively simple and short. You, of course, did need to know that you needed to do that. Uh, so in that sense, maybe it's more complex. Here's the other place where it's really com- getting more complex. How do you get started? It With yeah. Rails back in one O days or a long time ago, it was very, you, you know, it was, you could summarize the whole thing on one page basically how to kind of get up to the up to speed with a hello world type program uh doing something or other it was it was pretty simple then two came along and now three and now three one and each time the the previous generation is now obsolete you can't just run those programs in a lot of those cases the programs don't even exist anymore Yep. there's pieces or options and some other thing you would run generator script you would run whatever. So the point is what makes it really complex really is just figuring there's not even a there's certainly not a rails 3.1 book yet but no. uh, how do you get up to speed how, where what's there's a lot of awful lot of it, misinformation out there that you just are, are gonna just bang your head against until you pretty much figure out what's going on. Uh, there's a there's that legacy all those all those posts on uh, Stack Overflow for example of how to get around this or how to do that or whatever are suddenly now not applicable and that adds to the confusion and that's that's a, a negative. I did take a, a pretty deep look at uh, exactly what's being changed and and where they're going. I actually do like it a lot. It's very in- interesting. Effectively, there he's targeting the. Uh, Everything in the scripts folder and everything in the CSS folders, all these kind of catch-all drawers that that you would just throw a bunch of scripts into or a bunch of CSS. Now you've got the ability to uh, make those things be uh, similar to plugins or something that you would uh, kind of slice out on its own and and. Allow it to be, have its own revision control and all that kind of thing, just sort of independent of, of everything else you're doing. Uh, so it's actually a better way to handle it. And it, he's put some logic into it so you can uh, actually do some Ruby ish type stuff within uh, these things. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar at all with CoffeeScript. Have you seen this whole thing? I haven't, no,
1: I haven't seen it. I read about it uh, this past week when you brought the topic up, but I hadn't seen anything about it till then.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. It's just a, it's basically JavaScript without all the curly braces uh it's a lot easier to read it's sort of rubyish in that sense you know it's a lot easier to glance at and read it's fewer characters uh it relies on on uh different things rather than all the curly braces uh relies a bit more on form so it it's interesting uh and and you effectively write coffee script and then it gets uh uh, converted uh, to JavaScript and then it gets included in your app. And the benefit of that is, if you're post-processing stuff like that, you can just run it through uh, compressors, for example, and obfuscators, and, and this kind of thing. So there are actually some some really interesting pieces to this. Uh, same is true of CSS. There's a similar type of uh, translator uh, that uh, SASS that can uh, hopefully make CSS syntax look a little better. Uh hmm. I'm not so sure that those things are necessary, but it certainly is nice to have a programmatic uh way to handle some of this stuff. We'll see how it all goes. I'm pretty sure it's going to be uh uh you know, it'll be a bumpy road for for a little bit and a lot of people are kind of, you know, pissed off at it. But we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, not going yep. back to Java, that's for sure.
1: No. About you. No. Now, so the, here's yeah. an interesting topic from this past week. Yeah. There's been a lot of flap about in the Windows development community about Windows 8, yeah. and uh, in particular, there's uh, there's some concern about their support for the entirety of the .NET framework stack in Windows 8 because there's a there's a decided push in Windows 8 to HTML5 mm-hmm. um, as kind of the standard for for development, and <clears throat> that's interesting. But what's more interesting. I think, that came out this week is that Windows 8 is slated to release in 2013. Wow. Which is four years after the wow. release of Windows 7. So, Windows 7 was released July 2009. Yeah. Windows 8, sometime in uh, 2013, four years for a release cycle. Gosh, wow. So, if you, if you think about that compared to... What Apple's doing with their major releases um, of Mac OS X, which is really that's the that's what we can compare it to. Um, yeah. you know Windows is just getting slaughtered.
0: It's getting slower and slower, but I mean what are the I mean i I, I don't follow the whole Windows thing very much. They so have to excuse my ignorance, but uh, there was Vista and there's Windows seven, and now Windows 7. those were certainly. XP to Vista was a huge jump in terms of UI.
1: Yep, and I think the – and everybody hated it, right? I mean, they Vista, hated it? Yeah, well, Vista Well, I know they was, hated
0: Vista, but they didn't hate the uh, look, no, did they? No, they didn't yeah. hate
1: the look, but the, everybody hated Vista because they changed some of the – you know, XP was around forever. Yeah. And solid product, and everybody seemed to like it. They go to Vista, and it's a disaster PR-wise, installation-wise. All Ah. Uh-huh. Everything-wise, and then they come out with Windows Seven in two thousand nine, and everybody kind of took a sigh—you know—a deep breath and said, "Ah, okay." Uh-huh. They actually did a good job. Windows Seven is a great operating system, okay. uh, especially for you know for Windows. Yeah. And um, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens with this. I think I think there's there we I think we both read an article by uh, Bob Cringley where he's really encouraging Windows to just sort of scuttle the whole thing and start over.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. So, so what I was getting at with the with the Vista to Windows Seven move is what's an analogous move? I've seen some of this video for Windows Eight, and uh, some things are pretty drastically different looking, but it's still a file system and all this kind of thing. It still seems to be sort of the same underpinnings. Is there an analogous huge move in the OS X builds? Uh, I don't OS think so, builds. but
1: I think the main reason for that is that the OS 10 they got it you know, right. They, yeah, well, and they come out, you know, their releases come out quicker. It was six they're months. Inc- yeah, they're incremental. Yeah, um, they're just you know they're kind of tweaking things and adding just small bits yeah. of interesting functionality and fixing things that are broken. It's not. It's just not this huge bloat. So, what do you think um, about
0: I'm, Windows scuttling the ship and doing what Apple did? And making all of the programs, all that legacy stuff, just not doesn't work on the new operating system. Or actually, it did, but they had some kind of converter or something. Who knows? No, it didn't actually. I, uh, there's I, like some yeah. classic Mac OS X classic emulator or something. You could run old binaries. But okay, so maybe Windows does the same thing. But do you think a they have the technical uh,
1: fortitude to do it? I think it's more that they. uh, So Microsoft has, you know, I'm sure they have some of the best engineers in the world. Yeah, they definitely Uh, do. So I I don't doubt their technical acumen at all. I think what will keep them from doing that is you've got to be willing to turn off the revenue spigot. Yeah. And I just, you know, that would be it would be suicide in many ways for them. Um, And I just don't see that happening. Would it be suicide not to? Or, well, or, yeah, it's, it's, it's suicide or a slow death, right? Pick, well, pick well maybe
0: Windows more. doesn't matter anymore. Maybe they should just give it away for free. Maybe. You know, because your, your cash cows are, are uh, you know, the whole office suite, which I would argue you need to completely move to the web and just do better than Google does. And that should be easy to do because yep. Google stuff isn't isn't very great at all.
1: No, um, yeah, I think they could do it. I think they could go. Uh, I think they could easily win that battle if they put their minds to it. And yeah. so, anyway, well, interesting anyway. stuff.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah, so a uh, huge, huge win for for Twitter there. Apple uh, picked them for their iOS integration. You hear about all this? Obviously, you have.
1: I did hear about it. Yeah. Uh, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit more.
0: Here's the interesting thing: there was a build of iOS. Well, I'll just uh, just frame the background. So Apple has announced a fairly deep Twitter integration into the new iOS iOS version 5 uh, that should be out in a few months it it's uh, it effectively gives you the ability to post videos and photos from the photo app and uh, you know just a, it's just a tight integration with with everything um, usually you have all those menus you know open in Safari blah 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 well there's going to be another one saying, uh, you know, post this to Twitter type of yeah. thing. Uh, yeah. So, so it's it's very interesting, and it's obviously a huge win for a what are they three years old tiny company. I mean, it's not yeah. not very old. Maybe they're older than three years. I don't know, but not old. Uh, versus the you might the one you might have guessed they would have picked, which would be Facebook.
1: Yeah, right? I thought that was really interesting, and so I think the what I my takeaway. From this story is this that I think there's, and we read, we talked about. um, uh, There was another article that came out this past week that Facebook uh, subscriptions are actually, or Facebook usage is actually declining. Yeah. uh, Among those under in the under twenty crowd in the U.S. in the U.S. Yeah. And so I wonder, and I've also had some friends of mine who are obviously not under twenty for the most part um, talk about just the. Aggravation of Facebook, and you get these, you know. And I, I told you this story earlier this week that I've had this girl that uh, I went to, I went to grade school with. Yeah, it is just, (laughs) it is just hounding me on Facebook. Yeah, and I, and I have no idea why. And I mean, I've, I, I haven't seen her in thirty-five years, probably if not more. And, and, and so I don't understand. So I think a lot of people are getting fed up with. That sort of thing on Facebook and with Twitter, it's really it's you know it's shorter conversations. Uh, it's just kind of stream of consciousness. Here's what I'm doing, uh, here's what's going on in my life in you know two sentences or less. Um, yeah, I, and- I
0: I think there also is a major difference between calling it. Following somebody as opposed to friending somebody. This is my friend. This is yeah. that. That implies something. Okay, it is obviously something different on Facebook because you friend you know people from grade school or whatever that right. you haven't talked to in a million years. But but still, there is a big psychological difference. Because no, I think this, you're right. I think this, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's like like there is a difference between unfriending someone on Facebook and stopping following somebody on Twitter. It yes. seems Facebook; it's much a much more of a deal, and I, a lot of that has to do with the the name applied to it. I would argue.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, and there, in there, I've talked to several people that are are loath to unfollow some or un, unfriend unfriend, yeah, mm-hmm. because you know they think that the person will get pissed off or whatever. Yeah. And, and whereas, so if this uh, take my grade school example, if this girl was following me on Twitter, I, I wouldn't care. Yeah. Right. I would just say, okay, go, you know, have at it. If you want to catch up with what I'm doing, here's what I'm doing. Yeah. But for me to, you know, to, but I wouldn't respond to her on Twitter any more than I would respond to her on Facebook. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so I think, but I think you're absolutely right. The semantics of the discussion are important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it is interesting. I'll throw another piece of information out. Apple uh, had a an earlier iOS build uh, was a beta. Uh, I forget a while ago. Where they actually had a Facebook uh, option, a Facebook settings option in the settings application right there next to general, Hmm. right where the Twitter integration is right now. Yeah. Which is very interesting because it seems they tried to do something. Maybe there was a deal that fell apart, who knows, and they eventually went to Twitter. Yeah, I've, I've got to
1: believe something like that yeah. happened. I got to believe that Facebook had a crack at this. Yeah, and they may—they probably will again. But, yeah. um, but I think it's—it's uh, it's interesting that Twitter gets gets the nod in this particular case. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, speaking of speaking of Twitter and all the stuff we talk about, yeah. you know, we're, we are uh, a couple of older guys in, cer- in terms of technology. We're um, old. <laughs> uh, so how does uh, how do we keep up with all this stuff? Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on what's important to keep up with, and you know, how do you keep up with the pace of what's going on? And you know, so I had a I had a conversation earlier this week with somebody yeah. uh, that I actually ended up writing uh, a blog post about, where they blatantly called me old. I don't think of myself as old, yeah, and so. And that's not just me being, you know, in denial about how old old I am. (laughs) Uh, But uh, but I I stay up with, I stay pretty current with uh, with technology. So, what is What does it mean uh, in the in the world that you and I work in to be old?
0: Yeah, that's that's a that's a great way to frame this. So, uh, it's a huge uh, uh, sort of mountain to climb if you don't have any background. But when you have background and when you have, uh, you know how things work, and it really is just a question of uh, finding out what the new wrinkle is as opposed to reclimbing the mountain every time, it it is obviously a lot easier. So, But it's very important to stay on top of technology and see which way it's going. a lot of it you can pretty much just guess which way it's going to go because some things are just really good ideas and other things are, you know, uh, kind of like SMS, you, it, you know, everybody does it because c- they have to, but there will be very obvious, you know, quick transition when something reaches cr- critical mass that uses the data channel. So there are things like that. I think the, the uh, interesting aspects of this question revolve around things that are difficult to pick up, like a new language when you're older. Yeah. Uh, if you're coding every day in a in a language, and I got very into Java, like I could eat, sleep, breathe, whatever, I knew Java extremely well, uh, and a migration to another language that was similar to it in class uh, was was uh, it was hard for me. Um, it was it was hard to see whether or not that was harder from uh, because I was older or because it was such a major change. Um, but be that as it may, I've, I've, you know, took, taken on a couple of other languages to be specific objective C with, uh, you know, writing iPhone applications and, uh, rails. And I mean, these things are, are, are very different of course. Um, and some of them harken back to stuff, you know, from way back in, in C times when I was writing C, you know, but you, you kind of, you kind of, uh, uh, learn the new mindset and then all the other fundamentals sort of that you learned a long time ago, kind of coalesce around you. And and now you have something, it's very important to stay, stay up to date, but it's, it's just sometimes you have to climb the mountain and there, there is just no way around it. Um, yeah. And I think the,
1: what's interesting for me is, uh, so I, I picked up Ruby and then Rails uh, probably starting, let's say eight, nine months ago. Um, I had dabbled in it before and kind of got serious with it uh, back at the end of last year first of this year. And it it wasn't that, so I had the benefit going to your point about, you know, if you understand the fundamentals, I knew what I was trying to do, right? I knew the problem that I was trying to solve. And what I was looking for was the way that Rails or Ruby solved that problem. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think, it's, it's what – so what, what, you, what you get with experience is that you know the question to ask. Yeah. Uh, instead of – and I think that's really what you're saying when you say climbing the mountain. Yeah. It's you – know, you have to know uh, – like when I, when I picked up Objective-C, I've never been a UI developer ever. I've always been more of just kind of a back-end guy. And so when I picked it up, what was most frustrating for me is that I really had no idea – what how to ask the question to get the right answer yeah and to me that was and so I eventually just said you know screw it um <laughs> and you know found somebody to do it for me because it was just mind-numbingly frustrating yeah and 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 at the at some point I've got to just because it's not my job to sit and learn a new language um I just said you know I've got to spend my time a different way yeah but with Ruby it really wasn't that way I it was close enough mm-hmm. that that I felt like, okay, well, I, I, here's the question I'm trying to answer. Um, let me go see who, you know, the different ways that that people have have solved this problem. Yeah. But there it's, but it does get harder and harder. And I think it's, it's a function of, to me, it's a function of time, not age, if that makes any sense, because you have less time. So if you're, you know, when you're 20 something and, uh, and you've got, you know, somebody's paying you generally, if you're new in technology in your twenties, they're paying you to get up to speed on technology yeah. and, and they're paying you that I like, you know, you're, you're being paid less than the guy you work for because he already knows it. Yeah. Um, And I think what's, what's different is now is that, you know, if I spend eight hours on trying to learn some nuance in objective C, well, that's eight hours of time that I didn't spend with a client. I didn't spend on. You know R and D on a product that I'm trying to build, um, and and so there's a function of okay, my time at some point is valuable enough that I can't just sit there and and pick at a problem for two days. Yeah, yeah.
0: I so. think yeah, the, that's a that's a that's a great distinction. Uh, another another facet to that is when I was younger. I didn't use time nearly as efficiently as I do now, and some of that actually did have to do with the fact that I didn't know how to pose the questions. Um, it, it's just a complicated—it's it, a complicated thing. So you dive into it one way and you're you're totally lost. So you dive in it, into it another way and you're still totally lost. And after you've kind of looked at the the question from from ten different ways. Then you finally you know, get something, whereas nowadays, at least if you have some sort of a framework around it, you can, uh, you know, you can get to a much more efficient use of time for picking things up uh, you know, than, than otherwise. So maybe age, I would say, is, is that. It's kind of bracketed by your general experience around things, but it's also the amount of time that you do. That you, you know, if you're if you're trying to you know pick up something you know like microbiology, something completely different than anything you've ever done, I, you're going to be lost for a while, and yep. you're going to be very inefficient. So yeah, so and I think there's
1: it. a there's an element to it of you know your tolerance for being aggravated about it yeah um, goes sure. down sure uh, so I you know I think you get you, you get less patient because you know that you've got. Sixteen other things that are just stacking up while yeah. you're solving while you're trying to solve this problem.
0: Here's a good so. example of this when when I was learning uh, how to code uh, iPhone apps. Uh, now this is back in the day before the iPad, so it was it was reasonably targeted. It's it was the iPhone, and I think it was like the iPhone 3G or something like this, and that was it. There were there were no it wasn't a wide open field at the time, so it's fairly targeted. I could get in there and and you know, work on things, and I could write your hello world program, whatever. But there was still a mountain that I had to climb, and I think everybody who kind of does this, they they have to climb this mountain one way or the other. And that is how to use the Interface Builder. Interface Builder is now it's just a component of uh, Xcode, but it, it used to be a standalone program. W- was this thing that allows you to. Uh, put buttons somewhere and, and all this kind of thing in a graphical way on on uh, what looks like a little iPhone screen and you can tie things together, hook, hook controls up, all this sort of thing. Uh, it 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 has its own idiosyncrasies, but generally it uh, was very helpful and allowed you to mock things up very quickly and get them working. It, it is actually totally unnecessary. You could completely build an iPhone app without it. You could uh, construct things programmatically and all that sort of thing. Or you could do things, for the most part, with just stock code that you get and drag and drop things for the interface, or anywhere in between. But in order to understand where you should focus and what you should work on is a collection of understanding your skills and understanding what the project calls for. So where you sat on that continuum between just do it all programmatically and do it all visually uh, it, you had to really understand the entire thing. And that was the mountain to climb. Once I climbed that mountain, everything else was gravy. I mean, it, it, once I had an idea, okay, I kind of sit roughly right around here. Uh, you know, I might move back and forth a little bit depending on the the problem I'm trying to solve. But for the most part, this is where I sit. And, uh, you know, that was a big deal. the well, thing that took me about three months to get that. But once I got that, uh you know, it was, then it was all sort of smooth sailing. So that was, that was my mountain. That was the area where I just couldn't ask the right question. Yeah. Like because it, how do you, how do you ask a question? Like, okay, you click and then you drag this thing uh you hover over this such and such pops up and then you pick that from it.
1: Yeah. How There's no put way. put into Google? Yeah, uh, you can't, it was, and it reminds me of, uh, you know, you talking about, Coding by hand versus using an interface, but, you know, using a drag and drop kind of experience. It's like the early days of HTML when you had something like a front page tool. And, you know, when you were just getting started, you would use front page because it did a lot of the – it let you see what was actually happening.
0: Yeah, as you typed.
1: uh, As you typed and – and you could you could mock stuff up really quickly, but it also introduced all you know a bunch of crap oh, into the word. HTML. It was just awful. Yeah. And but so once you understood, oh well, here's when I here's what this page actually looks like in HTML. Yeah. Now that I've done it in front page, now I can now I understand, and now I can actually code this by hand faster. Yeah. So yeah, you so, can code it
0: by hand faster, but you could also use use the HTML editor in a much better way. Yes. Because you knew what it did quickly. Like you could just copy paste in something from Excel, like a, like a, a table or something that, that was set up a certain way, and that would be a lot faster than typing out the HTML for that. Yep. So, but you couldn't, you know, if you start to go in there and you change like a font size and then change it back and you go look at the, the code and there's a non breaking space character with font, you know, eight nested font tags around it and all this nonsense, you know. So, uh, yeah, you, you had to learn how to use the tool. Uh, so there's that as well. I think yep. we've actually, absolutely flogged this subject to death. <laughs> um, and we uh, should get on to uh, Amnesia Lane. To Amnesia Lane, exactly. Uh, we we uh, are talking about Bonhoeffer. And there was a documentary a few years ago, actually more than a few years ago now, on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, recently, there was also a book uh which which is, uh, apparently it's rather long. I've got it on my Kindle, so I don't know how many pages. But uh, this is uh, these things are, are discussing this man who was a, uh, effectively, he was a pastor. He worked as a pastor, and he was uh, right in the, he was coming of age right in the time, around the time that Germany was uh, struggling with uh you know the the with nazism essentially and uh it goes on to deciding that as a pastor it wasn't okay to just sit there he had to become active in the politics of the time and what he eventually ended up doing was becoming active in the group that would uh, attempt a number of times to kill hitler uh, and blow up bombs in in airplanes he was in, and the bunker he was in, and all this sort of thing. Uh, you may have seen the movie Valkyrie uh, with Tom Cruise, which uh, covers another character in the same story, but not uh, uh, not Dietrich, uh, who I would argue is the much much more interesting uh, person. So let me let me ask you as we start into this, Scott, how did you first hear about Dietrich Bonhoeffer?
1: So I actually heard about him from you, and I remember uh, this was back when or right when we started working together at bandwidth.com, you had uh, the DVD of the documentary uh, and you had it in your office and I said, "Well who in the heck is this guy?" <laughs> and, uh, and you said, "Well you said, well, you just need to watch it." And yeah. so I took it home, watched it and was just spellbound by this guy's story as a character I knew nothing about. Uh, from from the you know from World War Two and the really the period between World War One and World War Two is where he sort of comes of age as you said you know Germany's going through massive unemployment uh, massive social problems and uh, out of the ashes of all of that unrest you know Hitler comes on the scene and uh, and proceeds to just you know run roughshod over. The, over German society in particular obviously the Jews and there's a couple of things that I thought were, were really interesting about this guy the documentary starts out and yeah. uh, I thought it was a great quote uh, so he, I forget who the, who the narrator is of the documentary but he, he talks about Bonhoeffer putting um, putting a uh, what does he say He's putting a stick in the wheel yeah of jamming the third- a
0: spoke in the wheel of the third reich
1: Yes, yeah. and I thought that was a great analogy for really that was what he was trying to do. Yeah, and I think um, it's interesting. The documentary goes through uh, Bonhoeffer uh, coming to America and learning, uh, learning about you know he spends some time in Harlem of yeah. all places uh-huh. and attending uh, African American churches and yeah, and he gets this sent he 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 struggles with this the. The social issues going on in the u s where you know white folks will pay and stand up and applaud uh you know black folks to perform, yeah, but they won't give them voting rights yeah and they yeah. and he doesn't understand how that could possibly be, right yeah, uh, it just doesn't make any sense to him and <clears throat> and I think the and so he's able to later on when he sees. Uh, you see sort of the same thing happening in Germany. He's like, aha, you yeah. know, this bothered me before. And this is this is obviously far worse. I think uh, I thought it was interesting that the so he, he gives his first broadcast of uh, opposing Adolf Hitler two days after Hitler is sworn in as the new chancellor. That's of right. That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah, just I mean it's and I, to be a fly on the wall of history in that time where that must have been. Amazing. He was cut off actually. That's right. He starts his broadcast and the broadcast yeah. gets cut off in the middle of the broadcast. Yeah, uh-huh. amazing. And he, I think that he, was that was a strong signal of times to come.
0: Yeah, it was. He was he was quite a guy. At twenty one, he he, uh, he got his doctorate graduating summa cum laude, uh, you know, he he went to New York uh, to the Union Theological Seminary uh, and he studied under uh, Reinhold Niebuhr Um, and actually, interestingly, although he totally disagreed with the guy, took on a lot of what he was uh, talking about later on in his life. Uh, right, so
1: Niebuhr was, as I understand it, was known as kind of using theology as a as a as an element to change society.
0: Yes, exactly. It was it was uh, societal ills, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he so it's interesting to see how that he, he kind of actually did pick some of that up and and turn around. Um, no, but anyway, so he he came back to New, to uh, Germany, and you you could almost look at his life and say that he was running away from things every once in a while. Because as soon as it started to get hot in Germany, he was off to London to take a position there. And, yes. And yep. if you look at what actually transpired, I mean, he was building this network. He was, uh, uh, you know, he had a fantastic network around him. The network that he would go to as soon as he started working against the Third Reich, where, where he actually, there is a... Um, Uh, uh, you know, a a wing of the German government that he worked for that uh, allowed him to get papers and get out of Germany and go back to to London or actually to Sweden to meet some of the guys that, you know, meet with his network and reveal that what was going on, even giving names of the conspirators within the Third Reich that were trying to take down Hitler and, uh, you know, he he was essentially a double agent.
1: Um, yeah, it was stunning to me that uh, and they talked about this in the documentary. What you just said—that he's actually out there sharing names of guys that are on the inside mm-hmm. of of the of the administration, essentially of the Third Reich—and he's giving names, you know, while he's traveling in these countries. It just made me think about okay, well, that's a fairly high risk thing to do. Yeah, um, because all it takes is somebody one guy uh, being being a double agent the other way. Yeah. Um, and then all of you get shot. Yeah, uh, you know, on site. Essentially. Yeah,
0: high stakes game. <laughs> Extremely high stakes game.
1: Yeah, one of the one of the things I thought was really interesting was the um, they talk in the in the in the documentary about the um, about sort of the German Catholic Church. Yes, and and its uh, its uh, capitulation essentially yes. to Hitler's uh, uh, influence and power. And they, they also talk about uh, Martin Luther and the influence of Luther's anti-Semitic writings yes. um, on the rise of Nazism.
0: How, yes. There, this, is, this is very interesting. Uh, Luther, who was uh, – you would, you would never have thought an anti-Semitic guy, by the end of his life, was writing some absolutely horribly anti-Semitic stuff.
1: Yes. Yeah, uh, and I and to be honest with you, until I rewatched this, yeah, I had completely forgotten forgotten it. that. Yeah. Have yeah. you ever and seen? So I, I went. I went and read some of the some oh, of yeah. the quotes, and it's just oh, it's, it's you can it's, see why yeah. uh, why it's easily tied why it's easily tied. Yeah. Um, at the time, to the rise of this anti-Semitic sentiment in in Germany. Yeah. And they and and I think the church at that point feels like they've got uh, they've got uh, you know this. Guy in Martin Luther, who is you know n- has been known for the last four hundred years, Luther was um, Germany he was Germany, and he was to a large extent uh religion yeah. i mean with his uh, and they were his, the same yeah and and I think so now you start to understand why why it's everybody feels like, and Hitler talks in his speeches about, you know, having authority from God to do, you know, to eradicate the Jews. Yeah. And you start to get the sense of why everybody actually, you know, it wasn't just out of nowhere that they believed this to be true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It,
0: it was, it was like the, the foundation was all set there. And yeah. I certainly was, was blind to it. Like I never, I, I've always wondered what is the deal? Where where did this all come from? And yes. then you go back, right, and you start looking at at uh, Luther and some of the things he said later on, and you're like, "Oh, I, I, I you, you know, you can kind of see it." Yeah. Um, here's an interesting thing: uh, when when uh, Bonhoeffer went to London, he met with this pastor uh, Bell. Uh, he got an invitation to go visit Gandhi in India.
1: Yes. Yes. And
0: he. Actually, as it turned out, never did it. Now Gandhi, of course, was the was uh, you know peaceful resistance. Yes, and that was Bonhoeffer's rallying cry for many many years, until this one this one switch that happened right around the time that the Confessing Church was was created, which was effectively this breakaway of pastors leaving the uh, uh, the old church, the the state church. Uh, they They broke off and made the confessing church and they actually had their own um, uh, you know uh, seminary in like an illegal seminary and stuff. Um, it was right about then that that uh, Bonhoeffer starts asking questions of his friends that lead to this point uh, lead to this decision effectively that it is our duty to do something about this. And not yes, only to do something yeah. about this, they but talk to, about that in the documentary that
1: his he asks his, as he's getting ready to leave. He asks his friend, you know, is yeah. it okay to, in in the name of religion to kill you know an immoral man? Essentially, well, to to
0: murder a tyrant.
1: Yeah, to murder a tyrant. That's would, that's would, the phrase.
0: Yeah. Would his friends grant him absolution? Yes. The, if he murdered a tyrant.
1: Yeah, and they all think it's rhetorical. You know, sitting around the yeah. fire, um, you know talking about talking about social issues and i think and from from the documentary i'm sure even more from the book that that seems to be the germination of the idea in his head that this he has to do something and it can't be nonviolent. yeah like Mm -hmm. it's going to, to what was what i found to be really compelling about this is you know they talk about in his early days that um his religion was really based heavily on and his his view of the bible and his view of christianity was based almost exclusively on the sermon on the mount right and uh in the sermon on the mount the there's a passage in there where it says where Jesus is talking and he says, you've heard it was said, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yeah. And, and then uh, in another section, it says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. And so he goes from that kind of mentality where, you know, look, we've just got a peaceful resistance. Um, you know, good will win out in the end. And then he starts to see, okay, well, that's not going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, this guy has all the power. He's got the church behind him now. You know, there's, there's absolutely no way that this guy is going to be removed unless somebody, you know, unless somebody assassinates him or he loses the war. Yeah. And so here's a, here's an, here's a question for you. And the question is this. What do you think, if Bonhoeffer was an American— in 2000, uh, in 2001, Mm -hmm. what's his reaction to 9-11? I have no idea. (laughs) Um, that, that's a,
0: that's a difficult question. I mean, you know, the, uh, the, the things that, that Bonhoeffer was, was, uh, railing against initially, the thing that, that kind of Pushed him over the edge was what he what he was seen as a uh, something to do with a gross misrepresentation or gross misunderstanding of the Bible. It was a religious yes. issue. Yes.
1: Yes. So, yeah. So he goes from this this idea that that wars are being fought in the name of God. Yeah um and and both sides are claiming you know that they you know, they are yeah. yeah that God is with them and his argument is that neither is yeah and that war in itself is unbiblical
0: yeah just saying so doesn't make God
1: with you right yeah and so he goes from that so my I was thinking about this earlier today yeah. as we we're as we we're as as I was um, thinking about what we might talk about. And this idea that, because really, if you think about 9-11, the response to that was, was righteous anger if you were an American. Yeah. Like, that's what you felt, is uh-huh. we've been wronged. Um, you know, we need to do something about it, and we need to do something about it now. Yeah. And I just want, and, but if you look at it from the other side, you know, the, those that perpetrated the crime also felt, that they had been wronged and that they were doing the will of God and theirs was a righteous anger as well. Yeah, And so you can, it's really, to me, it felt like the same kind of, uh, you yeah. know, both, both sides claiming the favor of God. Yeah. And, and then using that as a, as a, as a, a as, as a launching point yeah. to, you know, go to war and kill lots of people and probably unnecessarily on all accounts. And, and so it's uh, anyway. It was it was something else that uh, something I was thinking about today. Yeah, mm-hmm. I have no idea what what. Yeah, I don't know. I think know what it was... probably depends on where in his life he is. I yeah, think if I think he's, so. If he's early in his life, yeah. Um, this certainly, obviously, uh, is not on the scale. You know, what happened either before nine eleven or at nine eleven was not on the scale of you know six million Jews being murdered. No, that
0: that's true, and and it is important to put this into uh, perspective. So uh the the uh back with Bonhoeffer and the confessing church it was nineteen thirty eight that he uh, uh actually that that thing was closed down he started in thirty five i think nineteen thirty eight it was closed down by the gestapo finkenwalden and yes. uh and that was that was right at the time that he had asked those questions and uh, you know, he had, he actually wrote discipleship, which, which is that, uh, probably I would think is his best book. Um, in any case, uh, it was, it was 38 that, that he was sort of galvanizing to this opinion that he needed to actually do something. And of course, September of, uh, 39, Germany invades Poland and the whole thing is, you know, now it's, now it's taken off.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, the so fire is raging.
0: It was right there at the right time. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, by May 1940, France is surrendering and, you know, in 42, he's up in Sweden and he's talking back with Bell, that, ge- that guy that uh, had given him the opportunity to go talk to uh, Gandhi. And now it was a whole different story. The discussion was the plot and, uh, you know, f- trying to figure out allied support. And the yes. response to that, of course, was was nothing.
1: He yeah, nobody wants anything to do with it.
0: There was no commitment, which, in hindsight, is is really unforgivable.
1: Um, yes, because then, really, if you think about it, the the Allies had the chance. Uh, yeah. You know that Bonhoeffer's crew had a guy on the inside that knew Hitler's movements, um, and I think with just a just a you know a very small amount of cooperation from either the British or the U.S. Yeah, uh, they could have had a real. You know a real mission, and they probably could have taken Hitler out I, I think uh, they much, definitely much could
0: have because uh certainly you can see it in that movie valkyrie which which is actually accurate on this thing the the main character who drops the uh, the briefcase under the table to blow up with a bomb in it, um, which only one bomb was activated of the two, and uh the the location was different, so maybe it wasn 't quite as powerful as a was supposed to be. He was actually playing two sides. He was playing the guy that would actually follow through had the inside access to Hitler and would follow through. And he was also the guy that would get on the airplane, fly back to Berlin and kick off the takeover. The uh you know, right. the, the yep. basically to switch over again. His 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 aims and goals were were military. And I, I think he probably would have uh, continued the the socialist state that was was going he just wanted to get rid of some of the uh, the top where there were you know uh, you know dicey deals going on or whatever he, he wanted to get rid of that and make it more kind of clean or whatever so he had different uh, uh, sort of uh, things going on there but uh, it, when that had ha- when that happened that effectively sealed the fate of Bonhoeffer because Bonhoeffer's name was picked up in a uh, – when when his – I believe it was his – I can't remember. But I believe it was his um, brother-in-law was, was picked yes. up for, for being involved in that other bomb plot where they yeah, tried –
1: Hans, Hans Vandenade, uh, okay, I believe yeah. is the name. Yeah. Yeah, Vandenade,
0: so I think. Yeah,
1: so he gets picked up yeah. and – uh and then all of the names of the conspirators are are yeah. known and uh Bonhoeffer goes to jail mm-hmm. and um goes yeah, to what, Tegel prison yeah what was Berlin. what was tragic is you know i think it's 6 months before he goes to jail he gets he gets engaged right, um to, to be married and then to Rita yeah to Rita and then goes to jail Always thinks you know for the first year or two that he's there. He thinks the end of his you know incarceration is is at hand right at any point, point. Yeah. and then at some point he figures out you know he's not getting out. Yeah. And and eventually, right as even though Germany ends up obviously losing the war, uh, one of Hitler's last acts is yeah. to have all of these guys um, hanged or shot. Yeah. So April that,
0: that was April of 1945 on April 9th. Uh, uh, in in Flossenbürg concentration camp, uh, where Bonhoeffer was was just moved, uh, he was court-martialed and he gave no defense of himself. Yes, uh, and so he was convicted on the ninth, and they hanged him. Yes, and that was it.
1: Yep, so, and his his brother-in-law and all of the conspirators are uh, are executed that same day. That's right, one and- by one one by one and yeah. it's a shame uh, it's I would have liked to have known I would have liked to have understood when uh, you know he goes from this passive you know pacifist turn the other cheek uh, kind of guy I would have liked to have known I would have liked to have just kind of been a part of the decision process where he says okay that's not going to get things done what can I do okay yeah. I can I can lead a resistance movement I can do these things. oh I know what I can do I can plot with, you know, five of my buddies to kill Hitler. Yeah. I mean, that's just a, <laughs> radic- that's a radical step. It's a big, and-
0: it's a big, but he was all in. That was the thing about him. Yep. He was just, and he knew exactly what he wanted and he was an all in kind of guy. I, yeah, would, it- I would suggest if you're going to read about, uh, if you want to uh, see more about Bonhoeffer, I would definitely suggest that you read the book uh, Bonhoeffer by uh,
1: Metaxas. Yeah. It's, so metaxas is eric metaxas is yeah. uh, the authority on bonhoeffer these days he's been on all kinds of tv shows uh he's definitely the guy the book is fantastic
0: it is a great have you read
1: it no but i've 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 talked to i've talked to eric metaxas and, yeah um it's just it's a i mean the guy's just he's he knows yeah, what he's he a powerhouse
0: about. he, he yeah. absolutely is and it's a fascinating book and i would highly recommend it if you've watched this documentary and you're you're at all interested the thing that's that that this book does is it it puts muscle and sinew on those bones. You 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 get an understanding of who he was and what life was like. This was an amazing guy. Yeah. I mean, to, to yeah. graduate, you know, to have your doctorate at twenty one, graduating summa cum laude is no joke. Yeah. and then yeah. he goes on Absolutely. to just you know just have this an awareness of where he was and it's. It's important to think, you know, Bonhoeffer, who wasn't a key person in the movement to kill Hitler, he wasn't a key leader in the church in Germany from the 30s and 40s. What what he was was this burgeoning thinker and writer. Yes, um, and and uh, if if you get the chance, also uh, to read Discipleship, which which is also translated as The Cost of Discipleship, uh, uh, that's a fascinating book as well. Probably his best, very very good. I think the legacy. Uh, of, of Bonhoeffer you'll you'll see it just in in uh, all these people that quote him like uh, yes. Martin Luther King uh, quotes him in a civil rights struggle and Desmond Tutu in, in South yep. Africa I mean he was he was an example of moral courage and just an amazing amazing person really really great character sketch to look at
1: yeah I think your point of him being really uh, his and my uh, just from uh, my Understanding of him, I think he really was his, his claim to fame. In my opinion, is that he was a true thought leader. Yeah. It wasn't the fact that he was involved in these plots is almost ancillary. He was stirring people to action yeah. with his with his ability to see things a different way. Yeah, agreed. What do we so? What do we got? What do we got coming up next week? Yeah, and on
0: that note, <laughs> so uh, next week we're gonna we're gonna uh, talk about On indonesia Lane. We're gonna talk about Dead Poet Society. So. Uh, this is a 1990s film uh, with uh, uh, your friend and mine, the funny man. Totally forget his name. Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Yeah. Great, fun film to watch. Very interesting. Uh, lots of angst in this lots movie. Lots of angst in this one. It is, it is definitely a coming-of-age film. Uh, yeah, but absolutely. we'll be talking about Deadpool Society, so, so uh, watch that film if you want to be up to speed in what we're talking about. Uh, and we will, uh, we will catch you next time.
1: Yeah, so we uh, check us out on iTunes at 353rd. Um, check us out on the web at 350-THIRD.com, and we're on Twitter at 353rd. We uh, thank everybody that's been listening and posting comments and, comedy, and sending, us, yes, exactly. sending us messages. It's been great. Um, we love to hear from you, good or bad. Yep. <laughs> All right, Anders, until, uh, until next week. All right, Scott. Till then, talk to you later.